Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today, if I do say so myself. During Sir Alex Ferguson's illustrious managerial tenure at the Theatre of Dreams, the Scotsman assembled three or four excellent teams, which allowed him to sustain success for such an extensive period of time. But not only did his playing staff evolve, Ferguson was also freshening things up with his backroom team off the pitch, bringing new ideas to the bench. In January 2007, the Red Devils were locked in a fierce title battle with Jose Mourinho's Chelsea, having failed to win a Premier League trophy in almost four seasons. Alongside the signing of Celtic legend Henrik Larsson on loan, Sir Alex made one of the greatest decisions he would make towards the latter stages of his career, bringing René Mullenstein back to the club as the technical skills development officer. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, United would go on to lift the league title at the end of the campaign, before having one of the greatest seasons in the club's long history, winning both the UEFA Champions League and Premier League in 2008. After Carlos Quiroz's departure in late 2008, Mike Phelan was promoted to assistant manager, with Mullenstein also being rewarded with the new title of first-team coach. Mullenstein coached some of the greatest players in English history, and football history, the likes of Paul Scholes, Wayne Rooney, Rio Ferdinand, and none other, and Cristiano Ronaldo were all supplied with the Dutchman's wisdom during his six-year spell at Old Trafford. And I could not be more delighted to announce that René Mullenstein himself has joined us today to discuss his coaching career, methods, and all things football tactics. René, thanks for joining us today. How have you been keeping? Uh, I've been keeping very well, Adam. Um, obviously, I've got a few, uh, a bit of time off after our uh, exciting World Cup qualification yeah. games against uh, UAE and, and, and Peru, so... Uh, Fantastic that we, <clears throat> excuse me, qualified for the World Cup, and uh, I'm absolutely in the moment just, uh, you know, having some nice vacation. You must be thrilled to be partaking in such a wonderful tournament, are you? Uh, absolutely, it's been one of my, it's been one of my long, long, uh, long life ambitions, Adam, to uh, to be part of a, a national team and to go and uh, and participate in big tournaments, and it, it doesn't come any bigger than the World Cup. How far do you think Australia can go? Oh, curiosity. Well, listen, you have to be realistic. And we are as, as a team, but we also know you have to take every game as it comes. The game at the time, there's no point in looking at, you know, uh, how big the teams are because all the, all the countries that are, have qualified for the World Cup are there on merit, and there are some really good nations there. We've got a strong with France and Denmark and even Tunisia. It's a very strong, but at the end of the day, it's 11 players that pull on the jersey, you know, and you step over the line and it's it's 90 minutes and you make sure you prepare for those 90 minutes as best as you can. And hopefully, you know, use the element of surprise. I think that's going to be part of our biggest weapon, mm. um, you know, and, and make sure that we, we compete with them. You know how far we can go. Our aim is obviously to get out of the groups, uh, through the group stages, and if we do that, that would be already, you know, uh, a big achievement. Brilliant. Well, one of the first questions I want to ask you is: obviously, you've had such an illustrious coaching career, but who are your inspirations, and who have been your inspirations throughout this, you know, throughout your coaching career? The biggest, like, it might be a manager, it might not be, it might just be, you know, a coach you met yeah, no. at academy level. It's a really good question, Adam, because I do think that for young, you know, aspiring coaches, it's important that <clears throat> you you create your own beliefs. 
But by saying that, you don't have to invent the wheel. Because football has played um, for over so many years. <clears throat> it's the biggest sport in the world, so many different countries, so many cultural influences. But what is important is, is that you develop your own beliefs and your vision about football, about coaching, about management, uh, and, 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 and developing young players. Uh, important is that you believe um, in what you're doing, not because you have to go through the coaching courses and do the badges, and the English FA tells you this, the German FA tells you this, the Dutch FA tells you this. Uh, you know, there is not one particular right way going forward. Um, but it's important that um, you do it. So my my um, inspiration was actually three people throughout my career. And first um, and foremost was um, a guy called Will Curver, who's developed the Curver coaching method, uh, which was based on basically you know, skill development, um, as it is at this moment in time, you know, curve of coaching is still implemented, you know, throughout many, many nations in the world. And it forms the important technical basis for young players. So then that they need to get exposed to that, you know, the, the, you know, as soon as, you know, when they're when they're when they're very, very young. So I I strongly believed in his ideas about how to develop young, creative, technical players. Um, and that philosophy, uh, after working with him for over, you know, four years with him in, in Qatar, I had the, the opportunity to sort of <clears throat> develop it further in the way that I felt it was working for me, you know, developing players. It was always about, come, came to three things for me. It's identifying talent, developing potential, and building successful teams. So those three things are basically the ones you know, the pillars that I've sort of based my philosophy around, even if I was working myself as a manager uh, in Qatar, but later on when I was working in the academy at Manchester United, when I was working with first-team players at Manchester United, and so on and so forth. So that was one. The second person that has really had a massive influence on me was Johan Cruyff. As a player and as a coach, it's the best player that Holland ever produced. And he's definitely rightly so named as one of the world-class players that ever played the game. But what I liked about him was his, his view about how the game should be played, thinking outside the box rather than very structurally in terms of you're going to play 4-3-3 or whatever, whatever system, 4-4-2, four, four, whatever it is. But it was all about creating space and, and filling spaces up and, and letting players play to their, to their strength. And... The element, especially what he had as a coach, the obligation to entertain the crowd, that was a big thing. So I always felt if I can develop players, young players, the way that Curva sees it, so I make them technically really, really as good as they can be, and I can then let them play that Johan Cruyff likes them to play, and in an attacking, attractive, you know, on, on the front foot style, if you can combine these two things, you know, uh, I always felt you're going to have a, you know, a successful formula. And the third person, probably you can guess yourself, has been obviously Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, he's been, you know, such an, you know, um, instrumental um, figure for me um, in my career uh, when I came at Manchester United. He did believe very much in my ideas about how to develop young, skillful players. That's why he's brought me to the club in the first place. But then he also understood that you can, you can still improve players at the highest level even if it's a half percent or one percent or that two percent, but all that added up will win your more games and therefore more chances in winning trophies. And that's what it's all about to him. So those three people have been very, very 
um, important for me, the way that I develop myself as a coach and the way that I, you know, look at football. So you spoke there about, you know, developing players, maybe that one or two percent, you know, kind of get the most out of them. And of course, that will lead to success. But you've obviously coached some of not only the greatest players to play for Manchester United, some of the greatest players we've ever seen in football, Paul Scholes, Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo. How do you, especially, you know, guys like Scholes and Giggs who are probably coming towards the latter stages of their career while you were there as the first team coach, how do you go about improving them as players? Because they were already world-class talents, if that makes sense. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, I started with first-team players. Some wanted to just to do some extra work. Diego Forlan was sort of the first player I started to work with. And Diego was an exceptional player, an exceptional talent. But sometimes you can be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, and, you know, you look at the front line of Manchester United, you had David Beckham, you had Ryan Giggs, you had other players, you had Ruth Nistelrooy in the striker position. So, but what I felt with, with, with Diego was that he was, he was very quick and he had two feet, but he didn't have really any, you know, um, you know, particular assets and skills to really, you know, wrong foot opponents or to go past opponents. So I did a lot of work with him and that rubbed off uh, at some point and more and more players came in. And Giggsy is another example, uh, because I got him in the latter stages, he said, and, and Giggsy was very, very explosive when he just came to the scene, 16, 17, 18 years of age. He was just pushed the ball past people and off he went. So when you get into your 30s, you know, everything, you know, just marginally slows down, but you have to adapt your game. And what I always use for those players, I would never use the word change in my coaching. I would always say, whether it was Diego or whether it was Ryan or Ruud Vanistro or anybody who worked with us, I think I would never, <clears throat> because if you use the word change, the players straight away think, well, why would I change? What, what, what am I doing wrong? But I would always use the word add. And I say, listen, in your position, if we can add this skill set to your game, it makes you more unpredictable. It makes you more effective in the positions that you play. So I always had that approach. And with Ryan, it was more that I said, you're not as explosive anymore, Ryan, as you were 17, 18, 19, 20. So what you need to do now is you need to use, one, your experience, two, your intelligence, and you are a very intelligent player, and third, your skill set, you know, to, you know, change angles of attack or to change directions uh, in, a, in, a, in, a different, in a different way that you used to be. And so I had a sort of a, a tailor-made package for every player that I worked with. Scozzi, as you mentioned, he was exceptional in the way that he played. He's one of the best, you know, midfield players the, the world has ever seen. He's got an unbelievable passing range. And with Scozzi, it was again, it was all about changing angles, angles of attack to get him to get him quicker in 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 the right. Um, uh, because you, you have to always think, Adam, opposition will analyze all the teams and all the players. So opposition playing against Man United would say, listen, if we can stop getting Scozzi on the ball, yeah, or at least if we can stop him playing those diagonal balls over 70 yards or balls over the top, he has to go square and back. You know, we, 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 we stop a massive um, element of danger. So I always was used to working with Scolzi, said, this is what they're probably going to do. So they're probably going to block this pass or this passing lane. If you then do this little skill and you turn, you change the whole angle of attack and bang, you're straight away there to hit that switch that you want to hit anyway. So those were the things that I was working with. And the players, I have to say, Adam, in the time that I was working with United, they were all absolutely brilliant. Very, very receptive. Uh, but again, it all comes down that you have to talk sense. 
it needs to make sense to them because that those top players they will take everything they they will embrace everything if they know it will make them better and therefore it's better for the team so when carlos kirosh stood down obviously he i think he became the portugal manager you stepped up to the first as as first team coach mike field and then becoming the assistant manager how did your role change in terms of so i think you were the technical skills development officer for, for just just before that and then you became the first team coach how did your role change in terms of maybe plan and train and did you solely plan train or did you work with maybe mike Phelan or whoever else was there i think eric Steele was there at the time and a couple of others yeah it was actually a very smooth a very smooth transition to be fairly honest because uh, Carlos already, you know, um, gave me a lot of freedom uh, in doing things in training. Yes, my main my main brief was that that technical skill coach to do the specific work with players. But more and more, as as things progressed, I started to do more, you know, things in small groups, small sided games, part of the warm ups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and basically, when when it happened, when when Carlos sort of um, uh, left Man United, um, me, McFeeling, Tony Strudick, Eric Steele, <clears throat> we basically just continued with the, with the pre-season and I basically took charge of basically the, 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 the main bulk of the season together with Tony Strudick because he had to do all the strength and conditioning things. So everything was interlinked in that respect. And it was just like a, a smooth transition. And it has basically after that, when Sir Alex Ferguson made it clear that Mick, Mick was going to be the assistant manager, I was going to be the first team coach, I just embraced uh, that opportunity and um, and like I said, the players were used to me. They were used to 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 me coaching them anyway. Um, and it just and we just carried on from there. When you plan training, obviously, I think taking into account the team's game model is so important. What did Sir Alex say to you when you were, you know, when you maybe first started working as a skills development officer or you were um, working as a first team coach? How you know? What was his kind of game model and philosophy where you had to then plan train? And was it always just about attacking football? Was it, you know, were you just given free reign to kind of do whatever you wanted on the day? Well, I, in, 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 in some ways, yes. Because he didn't really interfere with me planning and, 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 and doing the sessions that I did. <clears throat> but basically, that was built on, on the trust and the confidence he gained in me seeing me work over before the time that he appointed me. But... There was a really interesting meeting, Adam, uh, at one point just after he appointed me and the, he brought me into his office. <clears throat> and, I, and I remember it very, very clearly and vividly. And it was actually really important that he did because he had a, he had a flip chart set out in, 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 his, in his office. And he said, Rene, I just want to have a quick chat with you about, you know, Man United and how I see it. I don't have to tell you, you know, uh, how you need to run a sessions because that's all good and it's all great and, and fantastic. And my sessions, Adam, it always revolves around five main things. Yeah? One, there's always a purpose to what we do. Secondly, there's always a challenge in my sessions. Uh, and that challenge can be anything. You know, it, 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 it can be conditions that you put on a, on, on a position game. It can be a, a problem that we need to solve in the game, whatever. So always a purpose. Players understand what, why we do these things. Always a challenge. And then the main sessions... They always run on two things, main pillars, quality and intensity. These are interlinked. So if, if, the, if the intensity is too high and players start to rush, they start to make more mistakes. So that's important that, that intensity. If the intensity is too low, it's not match and game realistic. 
So those four things are the key things. If you tick all those four boxes, then number five, which is the most important thing, players will enjoy their sessions. Yeah. So those were the five main things. Now, what was Alex Ferguson talking to me about was this. He said, Rene, if I close my eyes and I want to see the best Man United playing in my head, and these are the things that I see. So when I see United defend at its best, I want us to be able to press really high and aggressively when we choose to do so. In other occasions, I want us to drop maybe a little bit deeper to maybe suck the opponents out. So we start from a certain block and we press on a certain player or we press on a certain area to then hit the spaces that they leave. At times, we also, because that's football, we sometimes might, we might have to, to drop deep and to defend deep and maybe defend in our own box. It's important that we then have, you know, uh, good spaces, uh, tight spaces, a, a good block, everybody knows their roles, etc. And then we can play on the counter. And obviously, from a defensive point of view, uh, you know, it's important that obviously the set pieces are being taken care of. And obviously, most important thing is, is transition. Yeah, the, the, the quicker we have a transition, the, the, the more difficult it is for opponents to surprise us and the more chances that we have to surprise them. Then he went to the next one. He says, but my Man United, our Man United, is all about possession and what we create going forward. So possession is key. And he said, most important thing in possession, again, it's always a purpose to the possession that we have. And that purpose, that might change through the course of the game depending on the score, depending on, on many more things. You're leading 2-0, five minutes on the clock, just keep the ball. No problem. Yeah, if we are, it's 1-1 and we still got only 10 minutes to go, we need to speed up the play and we need to uh, make sure that we, we hurt them, we break lines and we need to make sure that we create to, to score that winning goal. But the most important thing in possession is rhythm. He says all good teams, they, they can create rhythm, maintain rhythm and change rhythm. And what he meant by that was that if we do build up from the back, you know, you've got a slower rhythm. But when you get into congested areas, yeah, you then sometimes need to switch to a, a one-touch rhythm. So it goes quicker, up, back and through. So players need to understand when, when to hit that one-touch button. Or you switch the play to the other side, you know, with, 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 with what Skolzi is so good at. And that is, <clears throat> and that is the importance of, um, of possession with the aim Obviously, to keep the ball, to break lines, and to penetrate, to go forward. That's the main purpose of what we want. And then he came to the last piece of paper, and he said, this is the most important thing for Manchester United when I see Man United, you know, when we attack. And he says, when we attack, I want to see Man United attack with pace, power, penetration, and unpredictability. Those four things. And these four things I want you to instill in those players in this team every single day. And basically, the other aspects as well. So basically, on three flip charts, Adam, I had my whole curriculum ready for what was the red thread throughout the season. Yeah, the emphasis, because we were united and we do what we want, that type of attitude, that was really shown through because everything what we did, also in the analysis of teams, it was always 80-20 or 75-25, depending on who we played against, whether home or away game, was it a league game, was it a Champions League game, and depending on it, but it was always the main bulk was about us. This is the opposition, this is how they play, that's the system, these are the key players, this is how they can hurt us, this is us, this is how we will beat them, this is how we will win the game. Bang, 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 bang. So it was all based on us, confident, but those 
parameters of training were very, very similar. And on the basis of those three flip charts, I always devise all the sessions depending on was it the day after the game? How many days was it before the game? What aspects of the next game do I need to in incorporate in my possession play, in, in my finishing sessions, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're planning the training and per se you have a, a huge Champions League, games come, Champions League game coming up or it's a, a massive Premier League game, say against Zarsen or Chelsea back then or Liverpool, how would your training change to be more? Would, would it be more tactical? Would you still work on technical skills? Well, what was the kind of the ratio between those two things when we were planning for the, the depending on, as you said, what kind of the next opponent was? Quality almost on that squad that we had was one, it was riddled with world-class players, uh, very intelligent players and a lot of experience. So my job in coaching is probably different than any other 10 coaches that that coach in another in another situation. What I try to say, Adam, is this. <clears throat> Listen, in three days, we're going to play Arsenal away in the Champions League. We all know Arsenal. We played it many, many times, like I said, especially on the Wenger. There, no, there were no surprises in that respect because we knew how they were going to play. But I would then obviously always have certain elements of that game um, incorporated in everything that we would do in the session, whether it's a passing drill, a position game, and games. So they would know, okay, this is how it's going to set up and this is how it's going to go. That whole part of informing the players was done on the pitch. Then I would back it up with video footage about what I was talking about about the opponents. This is what I said. Remember, this is what the opponent's going to be about. And these are the reasons why we did this in training yesterday. Now we're moving forward. So this is what we're going to do in training today. Reasons why? This, 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 this. So I had to inform the players, facilitate, yeah, and then you come to the coaching point. And because the players were that good and they were capable of, you know, taking information on board uh, that well, the key for me was to empower the players to making sure that they were almost their own coaches. So it wasn't the case for me to say, stop, stop there, you know, blah, blah, blah. I hardly ever did that because the one thing that I've learned from my time at Manchester United is players at that level, they hate when sessions get disrupted all the time. Yeah, they want, they want to flow. They want to flow to keep going. So what I did in between, when we had a little break, like a 30-second break or a one-minute break or whatever, I would, I would inform, or before a session, I would inform certain individuals I, that were important in that session. I say, I'm looking for this. You know, and when, when that was not happening, I would say in between, I would get these guys in, sometimes individuals, sometimes a small group. Listen, guys, blah, 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 this is what I, this is what I want to get out of this. And then I would back it up again with video footage later on. That was the main, main difference with those, with those guys that I could really basically say I informed them, I facilitate, and then it was more about encouragement, encouragement to the players, and, you know, um, almost, you know, not, not correcting, but just sort of, you know, um, communicating with, with them together to make it, to make it work. And I suppose, it's a, well, it is a, a great testament to 
you and everyone involved in the coaching staff, there's so many of the players have gone into coaching. I mean, Wayne Rooney, Carlos Tevez is a manager now. Michael Carrick was interim boss. Darren Fletcher's technical director. There's so many. Gary Neville was even um, Valencia manager. Ryan Giggs. I mean, there's so many. Paul Scholes. And I've, I just wanted to ask you, you, you say there about opposition analysis. What were you looking for when you watched each team, when you watched the opposition, regardless of who the opponent was, or maybe it did fluctuate depending on whether it was a better side or, or, or a lesser team? You know, were you looking just for their strengths? Were you looking for their weaknesses to exploit? You know, how in-depth were you trying to be? How much information would you then feed through to Sir Alex? How much would you feed through to the players then? Yeah, well... We had uh, we had an extensive um, obviously scouting um, team that would provide us with with the reports that would would go and and watch the opposition. So we'd always have three or four, depending what stage in the league you are. But you would always have three or four reports of of the last games that you could look through. We had a an, an outstanding video analyst at the time, Simon Wells, who is I think currently still on the board as as a, as a as a member of the scouting. Uh, system at, at Manchester United, but what I liked about with Simon is is that we work really closely together because I valued the work he was doing, um, and the key was that we were both singing from the same hymn sheet, looking for the same. End. And what you just said uh, is 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 absolutely spot on, and it's all about obviously the strengths and the weaknesses. But the trends were very simple. You look at a team, and you first look at their you know their lineup and the system. Are they very consistent in it, or are they changing a lot? Uh, in, in the system, uh, in the play. what sort of style do they play? Are they playing directly, you know, from back to front and playing a lot of the second ball? Are they playing out from the back? When they play out from the back, do they do it, you know, through the, through the, through the wing backs or are they playing through the centrally? Whatever. <clears throat> then we would have a good look at the key players. What made them tick? Who, who's their key player in, in, in build-up? Who's the key player in, in the final phase? And who are the main goal scorers? Then you look at the trends, you know, if you look at how they uh, create chances, how they score goals, same thing. How do they concede chances and how do they concede goals? So from those trends, I obviously always picked up the most important ones that I think this is an element we really need to be aware of. I need to put that into training and making sure that's whatever. A stupid example just springs to my mind, but we all know uh, Stoke City with Tony Poulos, with Rory Delap, who had the long throw. You know what I mean? And it was it was a weapon. It, it was a real weapon. If you wouldn't uh, prepare for that, you know, you, you can, you know, you would pay the price. So things like that. And I would then discuss that with Eric Steele. Uh, Eric Steele would have done a discussion with Admin van der Sar and other defenders and say, listen, what is the best way to deal with this? And I, I would blend that in. You know, they would practice it. We would blend it into a game scenario. Off we go. And again, the most emphasis was still, again, about us. That was 20% of Stoke. 80% was about, okay, how are we going to beat Stoke? What can we expect? Probably we can expect to have more of the ball. They will drop behind the ball. Where do we think, uh, the, uh, where are we going to get some spaces? Can we exploit players into uh, 1v1, 2v1 situations, etc., etc.? And then what is the trend for them conceding most of the goals? You know what I mean? Um, or the chances, is it from crosses? Is it from shots? Is it from rebounds? Are the goals scored inside the box, outside the box? All that information. And, you know, um, we felt that for Stoke, that we would have to have good players in and around the box who had a, a really good 
uh, shot from outside the box because we knew they will get a lot of bodies behind the ball. So most time we have to rotate the ball out, back out, and we need to have players that are not afraid, you know, to hit the target from longer distance. Danny Welbeck, for instance, in that time scored a fantastic goal against Stoke at home. I, I can remember in top corner, but and and that's the key then, Adam. That you you work at it, you practice it, and then the key then is are the players still remember it? You know, obviously when they when they're playing, you know, um, obviously we 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 did obviously recap things just before the game, whether in the dressing room or in the hotel, wherever we stayed, but. Um, and that, for me, was the biggest satisfaction uh, every time, you know, I, I was sitting there and watching, knew, knowing what we did during the week. And for me, it was just really looking, are we, are, are, is the opposition doing what we're doing? Or are they doing something completely different that we were not aware of? And how can we uh, address it? Or is it actually going to plan and the players are executing exactly what we, what we want? Before we move on from from Manchester United, I, I wanted to ask you a question. So much has been made, obviously, of Strauss Ferguson's man management with the players, and you know, there's countless stories of ex-players talking about how he how he dealt with different situations. But I want to know how how he dealt with the, the coaching staff. How demanding was he of you when you were there? I think I'm sure that he was very very demanding. I think he was very demanding from more more than anything from himself. Uh, but I never felt it. I never felt that as such, uh, Adam. Our people said it to me um, many times when I was working on the Sir Alex and they said, how is it? And a lot of times people have only an opinion or a, a, an image about Sir Alex Ferguson when he was seen on TV mm-hmm. and when he got agitated, you know, when things were not going his way and he had to go at the fourth official or the referee. And people would sometimes say to me, he says, oh, it must not be easy to, you know, to work with Sir Alex. And I would say, in the contrary, honestly, it's 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 fantastic. I told him, he says, I've got the best job in the world. I want to do as a head coach or whatever, I can't. Work with him and, and, and this and that and the other, and you 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 have discussions with you know Sir Alex and McFeed and, and and other people about your know, lineups and tactics and everything. The only thing that I don't get is you know the 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 the, the crap that you have to deal with with the media. You know what I mean? But yeah, but they say yeah, but obviously the expectations are so high and this and that and the other. I said yeah, absolutely they are high and we have got the highest expectations of ourselves. It says, but believe it or not, I never felt, never felt any inch of any pressure whilst I was in the job as first team coach at Manchester United. There was never a moment that I had to drive to Carrington that I thought to myself, oh, not sure about today, not sure whether you know what Sir Alex is going to think about this or I might get, I might get the hair dryer myself. Never, never. He he just was very good in transferring that into into training sessions. That players won again. They enjoyed it very much. But there was there was always this quality and intensity. There was always I was always challenging players. There was always a purpose, and the manager could see it because the proof was in the pudding. And the other thing is is that we didn't dwell. We didn't we didn't dwell if something at some point you stumble once in a while or you had a bad result or not. We didn't dwell on that. We didn't go with the lows, but also we didn't go with the highs. You know, we were just very steady. We knew we were working hard every day. I'm sure that in the time that I was there, and it was a very successful period, uh, as you know, um, but I'm sure that we were one of the Premier League teams that had the least days off. We we were we were working we were working every day every day we we, we came home at three a.m. from a Champions League game and 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 again next morning, you know ten thirty training started 
you know, we didn't we didn't come in any later. We stuck stuck to the same routines, um, you know. But like, if you do create a good environment, Adam, players players want to be there. They want to be part of of success, you know. And success drives success. Success drives standards. Standards drives expectations, and and that is why it was so good. And so Alex Ferguson was the biggest driver of those expectations himself. It must have been incredible to work in such a a wonderful environment but of course all good things unfortunately have to come to an end in 2013 then I think you went to Andrew Makashkala I think I said that correctly um, and then yeah. and then Fulham you were the assistant manager of Martin Yall and you became manager how did your how did the transition to manager happen especially at a Premier League club how was the what was the biggest difference what was what was your role in terms of even looking at the opposition? How much more would you focus on the opposition now that Fulham were obviously kind of way down the table compared to Manchester United? Well, it was, yeah, it was uh, a bit of a strange um, development, so to speak, Adam, because I I did join Fulham mainly also because of, uh, you know, to, to support Martin, Martin Yol, because he was very keen in bringing me in. Uh, I was a, I was a bit of a reluctant um, at time, and I thought, you know, because I like Martin, I, I respect him as a manager uh, and as a person. I think he's a really good coach, a good manager, and and for the short time that we worked together, you know, we worked really really well. Um, Fulham is a great club, fantastic club, and great to see that they're back in in, in the Premier League again. But I was, you know, Martin suddenly left um, without giving me any notice. I was unaware of it and. The club really put me in, in that manager's hot seat without actually really consulting with me. Although I did know it was going to be a massive challenge because that was the reason why I didn't want to jump into it in the first place. Because I knew we had still a lot of good players, but a lot of them were in the 30s. A lot of them were the contracts contracts running out. And, you know, and I obviously did my due diligence. You know, we lost a lot of games in the last 15, 20 minutes of, the, of, the, of, of every game because the energy goes down and you just lose that yard and all that. And I thought, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be easy. And, uh, yeah, so suddenly, from see, from a coach, you are constantly um, looking to make sure that you prepare your team, every individual, as best as you can, that they can step over the line and perform for you. As a manager, you suddenly, you know, have many more things to sort of think about, you know. Um, you have to also manage all the staff around you. And as everybody putting in the same direction, you know, do they understand what is expected from them? Um and I and I really felt it was it was it was hard because I came from an environment where we knew that nine out of ten, eight out of ten we would win, maybe one draw and maybe one loss. So that was a sort of a almost an attitude and a belief that that I had. But this this was Fulham, and they were sort of you know in the in the lower places of the Premier League. So you have to start. To just think, and if this is the only time as well, not the only time, but this is definitely a time that I would have said, if people would ask you in hindsight, would you've done something different? I said probably yes, but when I stepped in, I felt the first thing that I need to try to to bring back in that team is energy and enjoyment. You know, I always felt they were a little bit they were a little bit flat and unsure, and and I thought, listen, you, you, when you enjoy the way that you play, you're probably going to perform better, and most likely. You will you will probably get better results. Now within within saying that, uh, we got that we got that energy up. We did play better football. 
but we didn't always get the results we wanted. And that would be the biggest change I would have probably made, that I would have probably, because I had this Man United, you know, believe in me, come on, let's go, and we can do this and da-da-da. But instead of us, you know, scoring, it was the opposition that normally scored because the problems of, you know, that I just highlighted weren't going away. So I would have probably should have been a little bit more at times have a more defensive mindset to just to sort of secure things and, you know, to, to get to get away from those bottom places, you know, first and foremost, mm-hmm. rather than just constantly hovering around and there's pressure there. Although I have to say, when we had the transfer window and I brought some some other players in, I brought uh, William Christian, you know, um, big experience, Danish international, you know, you know, great qualities and all that. And some other players, and we had the two consecutive games short after each other, Man United away that we drew 2-2. And then we had Liverpool three days later, which we lost 3-2 through a penalty in extra time. That, to me, was a turning point. And everybody in the club felt we were going in the right direction. Everybody felt we've, we've turned the corner here because it was a great, two great performances based on, 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 on effort, work rate, but also a lot of quality there. And we were just unlucky, you know, in, 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 in that last game. And that was, the, and that was after that, that was the only time that we had 10 days before the next game. Before that, I had, I don't know how long I was in charge, maybe two months, but it was every time it was Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Sunday, etc. Yeah. So I had no time, you know, with all the traveling and then you have a game and then you recover and all that to really, to really sort of give us, give us three, four, five days that I can really work on what I really want. And I was looking forward to that because after that, we were going to get a spell against teams that were all beatable. You know, we were playing West Brom, we were playing Cardiff, we were playing Villa away, you know, all those, all those games. But unfortunately, they made the decision to, uh, you know, to change it, which I felt quite disappointed about because like I said, if you look in hindsight, how I got to Fulham and how I got into this, this manager's uh, position, you know, um, if they would have straight forward asked me, I would have not necessarily said yes. So there you go. But you live and learn. Well, speaking of just briefly, the the, the two all at Old Trafford was by far the most frustrated I've ever been watching Manchester United. I think they had something like 88 crosses. So that's credit to you, I mean, on your side. It was, it was I'll never forget it. Genuinely, I was enraged when it finished. But again, Full credit to you for getting a great result there. You're obviously now with Australia and you've done incredibly well with Graham Arnold. You qualify for the World Cup. Just one of the last questions I want to ask you is, what are the differences in training when you work with an international side? Because obviously you've less time with the players and you maybe, is it more tactical? Do you still focus on technical attributes? Of course, you spoke earlier about the core of a coaching methods, but do you have to compromise a bit and go for a more tactical approach instead? Because they're not, I mean, they're not your players at club level. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's the biggest thing, uh, Adam, I have to say. Play, people people sometimes half understand the, the difficulties that we had to overcome in the last two years of, of qualifying for this World Cup because of COVID. In total, including the two um, the playoff games, uh, we played 20 World Cup qualifying games, of which only four at home, only four in Australia. So we never really had that home advantage. The players come, you know, some come from Australia, other ones come from all over the place, from Europe, uh, Japan, Korea. Uh, so they all have uh, long flights before they come in after the weekend, let's say on a Monday. You then have only 
a Tuesday session, a half a session on the, on, the, on the Wednesday, the day before the game. You know, and that's it. So, yeah, the focus needs to be really, um, you know, um, the whole, the way that we work with the players needs to be um, uh, very effective in the way that we give, inform the players and develop and, and prepare the players on and off the pitch. So we, Graham and I, we use a lot of, um, you know, we, we split up the meetings, let me put it that way. We use a lot of animations in terms of to show the players, you know, uh, this is how we're going to press, blah, 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 um, backed up with video footage. And that will very briefly be kept on, um, you know, on the, on, on, in the training ground. Individually, here and there, I can pick a few players off that I can sort of think, listen, you're going to be, you're going to be playing here in this position. Your opponent is, is, is a little bit like this. You're going to have a lot of chance of beating them on the inside rather than the outside. Now, what could you do? You could do this. Um, I still try to always find spaces to do finishing, specific finishing of what we identify the weakness of the opposition goalkeeper. Is there, is there anything, you know, where we think, you know, if you get in this position, look for this. Let's say sometimes a lot of goalkeepers, they overcommit to the near post. So if you get to the byline, you know, don't try to shoot, cut it back or just lift it to the back post space. Those things I will always put into finishing sessions. One of the reasons, however, Adam, is why did we qualify and won those playoff games was because that was the only time that we had more time. Yeah, we had, we had, we had seven days before we played the UE with the whole squad. Uh, and then you can really work with them. You know, you can you, you 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 can tactically, but everything you can put in place, and you can do a lot of you know um, smaller specific stuff, whether it's a defensive defensive unit, is a midfield unit, a forward unit, whatever, whatever we uh, we can work with. And we had six days before we played Peru, and that made a massive difference. And that was also the reasons why we were so well prepared for the penalties, for extra time and penalties, because. We knew from the start that if it goes to extra time, we need to maximize our substitutions, how, when uh, we use it. And if it gets to penalties, again, we need to know. Because people that say, ah, oh, penalties is a lottery, I think it's nonsense. You make it a lottery if you don't prepare. Uh, you cannot prepare for everything, but what you can take away is the uncertainty. So what we did in a sequence of four, four uh, series of penalties, two were sort of general, that I had a good feel of, who are the best penalty takers, who are the more consequent penalty takers. And then I did two specific series about if we're going to make substitutions, most likely it will be this, 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 this. So our top five players are going to take it will be this in this order. And six to 10 will be this. And the other one, the series was, if we manage to keep the best players on the pitch, how would it look like then? So I basically had you know, two lists ready. So the moment that final whistle went, plus the fact that we we all agreed on changing Matty Ryan, you know, the goalkeeper, because our second goalkeeper, Andrew Redmayne, has a really good record in, in, in penalty stopping, because also we wanted to give, you know, another element of surprise to the opposition to think, oh, who, who have we got here now? Because they've prepared probably shooting against Matty Ryan. And, and those all these little things, um, these details, they add up. And, and then it's it's so rewarding and, and satisfying when you see eventually that it happens. It would have been nerve-wracking when Martin Boyle, who normally scores every penalty blindfolded, got saved. Um, you know, the first one, but I thought if you do have to miss a penalty, the best one is to miss is the first one because mm -hmm. then you still have got time 
to um, you know to come back from it, which we did. Brett, I just want to ask you one more question. I'm aware I've brought you over time, so I apologize. No, don't worry. David Moyes talks about the importance <laughs> of coaching abroad, and I think he even brought in a curriculum in Scotland now where you have to uh, speak a different language while you coach, which is fascinating. How important was it to your development as a coach? I mean, you've been all over the world. You've been in Qatar, Australia now, obviously, uh, England, Denmark, with Bromby. Obviously, you're, you're in the Netherlands right now. So how, how important was going all around the world and, and throwing yourself into all these different football cultures and environments? Oh, it's definitely uh, enriched me uh, massively because I always felt that uh, I've always had a very, a very open mind to things in terms of when you go to another country, um, it will be different, but different doesn't mean, you know, uh, bad or, or better. You have to embrace it and you have to, you have to try to understand those cultural differences and how it works for them and how it can work for self. Um, I'm, I'm a big, I, I, I love traveling. I love to see the world. I love to see coaches and through football, I've, I've probably seen most of the, most of the world. And, and when you travel because of football, you always travel with a purpose and speaking the language um, is, I think is very important, especially to get your, messages across in the right way uh, when i was in qatar and we worked with the, a lot of young kids with curva we spent a lot of time in the middle east but he, he had a few words here and there but i i picked up a lot of words very very quickly uh because the football language is very universal you, you basically say the same things to get sessions going etc etc and that helped me a lot um in that respect and um so i would advise you know like i said for me it's been an unbelievable journey you know, uh, when I left Holland in 93 and somebody asked me the other day, similar to what you said, you've been everywhere, you've coached this and you managed that. And I think, yes, I think if I would put uh, on, 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 a, on, a, on a line and a piece of paper, everything that's there in football, whether it's from uh, grassroots, junior to youth level, uh, at an amateur level, I've coached every single one of them. And if you do the same from a professional level, I've coached every single one of them. I've even coached, you know, amateur senior players, you know, and I've coached and managed senior professional players at the highest level. So everything, everything that is in between that spectrum, uh, I can associate myself with, which is great because especially if you, if you sometimes do these podcasts or if you do courses, I understand where those coaches run into, what, what the problems are if you have limited resources, for instance, or a very bad pitch or whatever. You deal with those things. Um, but, yeah, it, like I said, traveling and football, uh, it's, it's been a unique combination for me, and it has given me a lot of – a lot. Of, and, I mean, the wealth in, 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 in the way uh, and what I've seen, um, because that is, you know, for me, the most important thing. Um, people say talk about rates. I mean, for me, it's all about experiences and achievements. That is the real richness that people can possess. Rene, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you smash it in November. I'll be rooting for Australia in the World Cup, of course. So thank you again for coming on. I mean, this has been a wonderful chat. Thank you, Adam. And good luck with everything. Thank you. See you, Rene. See you, buddy. This has been the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Rene Mullenstein because I know I certainly did. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week. Goodbye for now.